Our kids are putting on too much weight. At least, that's what we found last time we looked. Previous studies have shown an increase in the prevalence of overweight and obesity among Canadian children from 1978 up until 2004. But more recent studies in other countries have suggested a change in those trends. Also, in 2010, the definitions of overweight and obesity changed with the introduction in Canada of growth charts from the World Health Organization. The trends of overweight and obesity in Canadian children therefore need to be re-examined. I'm Dr. Matthew Stanbrook, Deputy Editor for CMAJ, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Celia Rod. She's an Associate Professor of Pediatric Endocrinology at the University of Manitoba, as well as a clinician scientist and epidemiologist at the Children's Hospital Research Institute of Manitoba. I reached her in Winnipeg. Celia, hello. Hello, Matthew. To start off with, remind us what we knew about what was happening with overweight and obesity among Canadian children towards the end of the 20th century. In 1978, we knew that about a quarter of children were overweight or obese, and 6% were obese. Then the obesity epidemic ensued, so that by 2004, the overweight or obesity rate had jumped up to a third of Canadian children, and the obesity rates had doubled to 12%. It's important to remember that these are using the current WHO definitions, and I'm quoting on two national Canadian surveys. How did Canadians react to that news in the decade that followed? Well, I think that there has been intense media interest and interest within the population because of both increases in obesity, both in the pediatric population as well as adults. And as you're aware that we read and hear about this on a daily basis, both individuals and policymakers have instituted multiple programs to to try to tackle and prevent obesity and its sequelae. We start in childhood because we know that there are long-term ramifications for these children when they progress into adulthood. As an example, a recent study in Australia showed that eight-year-old children who were obese would go on by the time that they were in their mid-teenage years to have multiple cardiovascular risk factors, such as hypertension and metabolic syndrome. And as said, Additionally, we know that uh, childhood obesity tracks into adulthood, so it's quite important that we tackle it earlier, early on. As healthcare providers, we see the impact of obesity in our clinics and hospital, and I have never seen such high rates of hyperten- hypertension, diabetes, and metabolic syndrome that I had when I started practice. And you face a particular challenge to define overweight and obesity in children. Can you remind us why that is? So in the adult population, you have hard outcome data such as strokes and MIs or heart attacks that help to uh, determine the increased BMIs associated with these worse health outcomes. In pediatrics, we have to use proxies such as hypercholesterolemia or hypertension. Additionally, we generated our BMI or body mass index norms based on healthy pediatric populations, and we aim to align them with the thresholds that are established with adults, but it said we just don't have those same hard outcomes. Right, and you mentioned uh, earlier the, the growth charts from the World Health Organization, which is what Canada now uses, but that's a recent thing. We, we switched to those in 2010. Why did that change occur, and how did that alter the way that obesity and, and overweight are classified for Canadian children? Over the past 15 years, there have been four new sets of growth charts available to healthcare providers in Canada, which is actually quite a number. The latest was the 2014 growth charts 
that are adapted, the WHO growth charts adapted for Canada, I believe are going to be the gold standard that we're going to use. The newest growth charts were actually reanalyzed by the Canadian Pediatric Endocrine Group, or CPEG. They were a reanalysis of the 2010 growth data by WHO. The very first growth charts that we had in Canada were the 1977 NCHS CDC charts. They were based on American surveys from children, and these were developed prior to the obesity epidemic. The 2000 CDC charts introduced the BMI concept for children, which was revolutionary. It had been around for adults, but it was important for us. So the CDC growth charts, as I said, were revolutionary because they allowed us to compare from the age of 2 to 18 and have age and sex-specific Z-scores or percentile values. But there were some important drawbacks to these 2000 CDC growth charts. They were using American data, largely American data, from 1963 to 1994. And we know after the 1970s, there was the start of the obesity epidemic. This meant that the children's weights were heavier in the later surveys from the 1980s and the 1990s used to create that 2000 CDC BMI chart. In a sense, the CDC charts normalized the weight gain and so that there was an upward shift both in the weight and the BMI Z scores compared to the 1977 chart. So in 2010, we had new growth charts that were adopted in Canada. They were the 2010 WHO growth charts adapted for Canada. And these were endorsed by the Public Health Agency of Canada, the Canadian Pediatric Societies, Dietitians of Canada, the College of Family Physicians, and the Community Health Nurses. There were some important changes that they made. Mostly what they did is they went back to the American data from 1963 to 1975 to generate the weight, height, and BMI curves. Additionally, they trimmed away some children from these surveys that were disproportionately overweight and a few that were underweight. So there was no longer an upward shift in both the weight centiles and the BMI curves. So you'll notice that the WHO curves, the weight curves are lower than those in the 2000 era. So this was really an attempt by the WHO to define BMI curves that better reflected children prior to the obesity epidemic. Importantly, they used different reference population than the 2000 CDC charts. They used different absolute percentile thresholds also than the CDCs. And they also allowed the BMI charts and definitions of overweight or obesity to vary by age. So we allowed toddlers to be a little more pudgy than older children. When they looked at their curves and they aligned them then with the adult definitions, we found that there was now a near-perfect alignment of the WHO pediatric centiles at the age of 19 and the adult BMI cutoffs for overweight or obesity. So the 85th centile at 19 years of age aligns exactly with 25 kilograms per meter squared, and the 97th centile at 19 years aligns with 30 kilos per meter squared. Unfortunately, there was one significant problem as a pediatric endocrinologist and pediatricians recognized across Canada in 2010 is that there was no longer wait for age past the age of 10. So this was an issue for me as a clinician. I could measure an 11-year-old, I could plot, plot their height, I could plot their BMI, but I couldn't actually track where their weight was going. The WHO did this deliberately because they wanted us to focus exclusively on BMI rather than weight in teenagers because they knew that in general there was a rising prevalence of obesity. So Dr. Sharma and I were members of the Canadian Pediatric Endocrine Group in 2012 that created an extension for weight for age past the age of 10. 
The WHO provided the data for these reanalysis. These growth charts were applauded by many pediatric and Canadian stakeholders. And in fact, in 2014, we have the latest sets of growth charts. Public Health Agency of Canada and WHO adopted this extension for Wait for Age generated by the CPEG growth charts in 2012. So this final set of growth charts in 2014 is likely going to serve Canadian children for a long time because we have complete weight for age, height for age, and BMI for age centiles from children from the ages of 2 up to the age of 19. And I think it also allows us, when we're looking at BMI changes and the question of overweight and obesity, to undertake more nuanced analysis when looking at changes in BMIs. It's a very thorough explanation of the history that's got us to that point. Can you summarize for us the, the impact of that shift to the new curves from what we had before? Does that classify more children and youth as obese and overweight than the previous uh, set of curves did or less? Importantly, using those new WHO percentile definitions compared to the 2000 CDC, we actually know that now that more Canadian children are classified as overweight or obesity by about 8 to 10%. So the CDC charts underestimated probably by about 8 to 10%. And I think that the WHO are probably more in line with adult representative data. Could I also point out that our group, that the CPEG team also developed waist circumference and waist to height ratio growth charts. We previously didn't have anything that was a valuable tool. We know in adults that weight circumference is a probably an even better assessment than BMI when looking and evaluating cardiometabolic risks such as metabolic syndrome and hypertension. As you know that these are excellent measures of central adiposity and we validated them. We found that they were actually more closely associated with cardiometabolic risks compared to the NHANES data. Those charts are based on the U.S. reference population from the NHANES study, so it's a different uh, reference population than the WHO charts, is that correct? Yes, the waist circumference and the growth data are similar data. Let's come to the new study you've just published in CMAJ, which is bringing our, our knowledge about obesity and overweight in children in Canada forward. What did you want to accomplish with this study and, and why? We wanted to explore the prevalence of overweight or obesity in the latest decade in Canada. The last data that had been available using large representative cohorts of Canadian children was back in 2004. And we knew that there had been a tremendous amount of research in the last decades exploring obesity um, and the trends and the complications. We were also well poised to undertake those analysis because we had the new waist circumference tools, we had the new WHO criteria, and we had the latest set of CHMS data from 2012 to 2013. How did you go about your analysis? Where, where did you get your data from to look at the last 10 years, and what analysis did you do with this data? We had data from just over 14,000 Canadian children, which was a particularly rich data set and is probably one of the largest Canadian growth cohort data available for analysis in the past number of decades. We wanted to assess height, weight, BMI changes, as well as obesity and overweight criteria and thresholds. We wanted to include children as young as possible and to extend out to 19 years of age in terms of looking at these analysis. The WHO charts now allow us to look at growth parameters out to 19 years. 
So the largest data set that we had was a CCHS cycle 2.2, and we had roughly 9,000 children from 2004 to 2005, aged from 3 to 19 years. We then looked at cycle 2 and cycle 3 from CHMS data. So that's from the years 2009 to 2011, we had 2,500 children from cycle 2 and 2,500 children from 2012 to 2013 for cycle 3. Importantly, there was a very good split of children between boys and girls, approximately equal. Roughly 80% of the children were of European descent or were white. We used the WHO definitions, as I had mentioned earlier. Importantly, um, all three surveys used approximately the same sampling frames. We had a very wide target with roughly 96% of the Canadian pediatric population eligible to be measured. Just over three quarters of the households agreed to actually participate to have their children um, measured. And the children were measured by standardized methods and by trained professionals. We undertook waist circumference measurements, analysis, and that these had been undertaken using the NIH protocol, which tends to use a standardized landmark, which is the highest point on the iliac crest. And both Stats Canada and NIH deem this to be the most reproducible site for evaluating this measure of central adiposity. So let's come to your study's main finding. Tell us what has happened to the prevalence of overweight and obesity among Canadian children over the last decade. We found encouraging results, really encouraging results, particularly because this was really just over a decade. As you remember, at the beginning of the podcast, we talked about from 1978 to 2004 that there was a significant increase and a doubling in the rate of obesity. We noticed a plateau in the obesity at the rate of 13% from 2004 out to 2013, and there was a significant decline in overweight or obesity from 30.7% to 27% in those same years. So this represented a drop of 15% in the overweight or obesity classification in a very short time frame. Additionally, we found that some children did a little bit better. Girls tended to be leaner than boys, younger children and white children fared a little bit better. These findings are really exciting because many developed countries are demonstrating plateaus, but no real progress over the same time period. The latest analysis from the United States from 2003 to 2012 also demonstrated a plateau in the obesity rates, and there are about 17% obesity rates, and their overweight or obesity rates actually stand at about 30%. But you have to remember that those are using the CDC criteria and that their prevalence is probably 8 to 10% higher than what we would actually find if we were using the WHO definitions. Importantly, this drop in the status of overweight in Canadian children by the time of 2013 was due to a real drop in the weight Z scores, that the height Z score stayed the same. So children were actually leaner over time, and this represented a drop in the BMI Z scores as well too. In our measures of central adiposity, the waist circumference and waist-to-height measurements, we only had data from 2009 and 2013, and the Canadian children compared to the American data that were used to generate those charts, the Canadian children had narrower waist, even compared to children back to 1994 to 1988. So there's really lots of good news here in Canada. Canada is doing well, but I think we need to continue with this great work that we're doing. 
I wanted to pick up on a few of the nuances that I thought were particularly interesting in in uh, the results you present in your paper. So you mentioned your measurements of both BMI and waist circumference and the importance of both, which is uh, a real asset of this paper compared to what we've had before. The trends, though, it seems to me, don't exactly match. The, the BMI trends are down, it's true, but the waist circumference uh, trends, although we're still better than the benchmark, which is U.S. kids from 20 years ago, the waist circumference trends haven't really changed. Actually, if you look at the last three years, they, they seem to be going up uh, compared to levels a, a decade ago. So how are we to interpret this seeming contrast in trends with the, the BMI trends suggesting that children are, are getting leaner and yet the waist circumference trends not really matching that? Well, I'm very glad you picked up on that. It would suggest perhaps that the waist uh, circumference staying relatively the same. And I know that there are very small differences that we're seeing. And because we have a large group of children, that statistical significance uh, may not necessarily mean or imply that there's a biological difference. But I think the thing is, is with the BMI plateau and the waist circumference relatively static, maybe a small shift, maybe that there's a change in terms of that distribution of the adiposity. And we also know that the BMI is a marker for bone and muscle and not necessarily true central adiposity. So I think that that's a puzzling finding and that uh, it will be something that will be carried forward as we start to continue using these benchmark uh, measurements. Another thing I, I thought was interesting is you looked at girls and boys separately and you actually found in some cases there were some differences in, in the trends. Uh, both boys and girls had their BMIs uh, going down over time, but girls seemed to, to have a bigger improvement than boys. And yet if I read your data right, it's not that their weight is getting lower relative to boys, it's that girls are getting taller relative to boys. Am I correct about my interpretation of that? I think that in general, girls are improving. I think that there may be some small changes in their height so that girls and boys are generally positive on their height Z score, meaning that they are higher than the American children that were used to create the WHO growth charts. That's nice to know that I think there may be some small changes going there, but girls still are having a, a decline in their weight Z score. And there may be a small combination of both, which is then creating a slightly better BMI score. But the weight Z score for girls also declined. All right. And, and you looked at the distribution across the ages of how BMI trends were, were falling. And when you look at that in, in figure one in your paper, it seems that this improvement in BMI is being driven primarily by school age children between the ages of five and 12, whereas teenagers have sort of less of a difference there. Can you comment on that? What does that tell us about sort of where we're making our, our gains here? Well, that's an important observation. Uh, we knew that older children, by looking at some of the, the regressions that we did, we knew that older children were faring less well than the younger children. And it's the question in terms of whether or not some of the programs and some of the implementation and some of the dialogue that we may be having is targeting some of these younger children. Importantly, in the United States, when I said that there was a, a plateau in their obesity rates, they did actually find some small decreases in the youngest children aged two to five years. So I'm not sure whether or not with the most recent data, it's really reflecting an, a concerted effort, particularly targeting children, but the message is being heard most for those youngest children. I'm not sure. 
So let's come to what we think is going on in, in these children. Clearly, this is a good news story, it would seem. We've so we've we've reversed the, the trends that have been seen in, in previous decades. What have we done right? Where where is this improvement coming from, do you think? That's a great question. As you can understand, the survey data are not really able to inform us as to what or how this has changed over time and why we're seeing this decrease. Certainly as a clinician, I'm aware of many resources available, either an individual or family or community center to try to tackle this problem. There's, there are certainly a number of primary prevention strategies, and that may be why we're seeing changes in the younger children. I should also mention that probably maybe why we're not seeing so many changes in the adolescents is that we also know that they're not as physically active and that we need to target that group. I need to speculate that perhaps that in the year 2000, with the introduction of a BMI chart for children by the CDC growth charts, that this has been a useful tool for physicians to start a dialogue with families on a one-on-one -on -one basis. And as a clinician, do you find you're having that dialogue more often now than you were 10 years ago? Are you giving more interventions, feedback, counseling, et cetera, than you were a decade ago? We invite uh, parents uh, to have that conversation. Sometimes the family and the children aren't ready or willing to have that dialogue, but just showing them how the child is growing and opening up that door for questions that we hope that creates that positive dialogue. What's important for children is that we don't ask them to lose weight because we know that if they still have growth left, that they, if we plateau their weight, that they will effectively have an easier time to become a little bit leaner. At the same time as, as sort of the good news piece, we see trends in obesity. If you look at obesity in and of itself are kind of flat, I guess that's an improvement from the increases we've seen in decades past. And yet it, it seems like we're having a little more trouble dealing with, with you know, the, those who are, are, have reached the, the frank obesity category. What are the barriers there that we've yet to overcome that we now need to work harder on if we're going to avoid those health consequences down the line that you talked about earlier? Right. I think that's an important point. I, I wouldn't actually be so pessimistic with the findings in these studies. We know that this is just a decade of progress. And I think my co-author, Dr. Sharma, and I are heartened by this accomplishment over a mere decade. It's probably also easier, as you said, for the children who are somewhat overweight to shift back into the normal BMI category. Um, we've noted important declines in both the weight Z scores in children. But as you said, it's probably harder for those more severely affected with obesity to actually accomplish that shift down during this time interval. We were certainly well powered to look at changes in overweight or obesity, but we may also have been underpowered as well in this particular study because obesity, severe obesity, is actually a relatively rare outcome. So what new strategies or new tools do we need to improve on the progress we've been making in terms of children and overweight and obesity? What would be most helpful over the next decade to make these trends even better? One piece of information that I think will be really important looking at this latest cohort of children is teasing out some of the socio socioeconomic factors. We know some of the biological factors right now that boys are faring less well and that older children are faring less well. We know that poverty and the lack of education has been associated with obesity in multiple jurisdictions. And we're in the process of actually teasing that out because I think that that would actually help us to further target where we need to address situations. It's not surprising that wealthier or more educated families have the resources, the means, and the initiative to provide 
extracurricular activities and a more balanced or nuanced diet. I think that there are lots of interesting concepts and guidelines out there, some of them that have been put in place by the Canadian Pediatric Society, such as the healthy act of living, that we need to advocate for at least 30 minutes of daily moderate to vigorous physical activity for all children. I think some interesting ways of actually establishing the caloric contents of food are coming out and understanding how people would maybe better appreciate that a piece of pie might take 30 to 60 minutes of vigorous activity to burn off compared to an apple that might take only 10 to 15 minutes. And maybe this, we know from various studies, that this actually does sway consumers' choices is what they would pick for a snack. Do I want to run for 30 minutes or do I want to run for 10 minutes in terms of burning off that? Unfortunately, I think that Canada has unacceptable low levels of literacy, which also hampers some of the work and available information that's out there. We need to have specialized pediatric nutritional counseling available. It's important to remember that dietitians may need to think differently for a 25-kilo child than for a 100-kilo overweight man. It's really important, too, to think that children are the canary in the coal mine, that when you look at a child, you're also looking at that whole family. So when we make changes, it's for that child, but in within the whole context of the family and probably helping to strategize adult members to eat better and exercise more, too. Well, this is certainly a topic that's relevant to uh, every Canadian who has children and every clinician who works with them. So it's, it's great to have this updated information in the sense that we're doing better. And I very much appreciate the fact that you've uh, been with us today to explain all this to us. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Matthew. I appreciate that, too. I've been speaking with Dr. Celia Rod, Associate Professor of Pediatric Endocrinology at the University of Manitoba and Clinician Scientist and Epidemiologist at the Children's Hospital Research Institute of Manitoba. To read the research article she co-authored, visit cmaj.ca.